Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. Now, if you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and in essence, catch up on our cinema. Uh, so, uh, we did have a theme for y'all uh, planned out for May 2021. Uh, however, things went tits up, and uh, we're not doing that. Uh, instead, we're going to be doing a free-for-all this month, so from week to week, there will be no theme connecting these films, I don't expect anyway. Uh, so, in joining me in this first week of May, though, uh, I have my brother, <laughs> Matt. Uh, he's been on the show several times before. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Nitro? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, how, how are things in your neck of the podcasting woods these days? Oh, pretty good. Biting off more than I can chew, running two shows currently. So one of them, a wrestling podcast, finding the name of the Hollywood Brunettes. And then I also have the video game one, Couch Co-op. So for any of you folks who aren't fed up with my voice at the end of this, however long recording, feel free to check those out as well. Oh yeah, they're both fantastic. Uh, I, I, love, I love the camaraderie uh, you have going on there on Couch Co-op. But just, just the format is it's it's what it sounds like. It kind of reminds me of like uh, coming back to school after the long weekend or something and like talking to your friends about like, oh, so what'd you rent at Blockbuster this weekend? <laughs> it's like Fester's Quest. <laughs> it's like, oh, do tell. <laughs> but yeah, both excellent podcasts. Most certainly check them out if you're so inclined. But um, because he's our esteemed guest uh, this week, uh, I gave my brother uh, the esteemed privilege of selecting the film that we'd be reviewing this week and uh matt what what did you pick for us to watch this week uh we went with the sound of metal sound of metal uh from 2020 directed by darius martyr um this was of course up for i believe six different academy awards nominations of which it won two uh one for best supporting actor uh and one for best sound editing which makes sense given the subject matter and whatnot um, but yeah, this was kind of a award season darling. And of course, the Academy Awards weren't too long ago. But Matt, why why did you pick Sound of Metal for us to watch? Being as we just came out of Action April, as well as a review of the not-so-hot Mortal Kombat 2021. <laughs> That's quite well, the transition. <laughs> there's, a no, there's a variety of factors here at play, uh, Trevor. I mean, for starters, like I just introduced myself as the nearly 40-year-old guy who does podcasts about professional wrestling, Van Damme movies, and video games. So you know, it, it is important to put out there that I do you know, partake in higher-cultured film and you know, art in general. Um, obviously too, like you just said, it was the, uh, darling of the award season large and, you know, the fact that it's on Amazon, everybody's aunt and uncle is going to be contacting them online and saying like, Oh, you need to check this movie out. You know, it's free on prime. So there's that factor. But honestly, the biggest thing, uh, that made me want to discuss this movie with you is the fact that, uh, I actually took three years of sign language or American ASL, if you want to call it in college. So I actually have a very slow i'm not gonna say that i in any way represent the deaf community but i have had to partake in community events and obviously took the three quarters of classes so anything that involves that community kind of intrigues me just to see what i learned in comparison so yeah this was a great opportunity in my opinion yeah, um, in a lot of ways, I, I kind of described this movie like after I watched, actually, because um, 
I didn't go into this blind, but very nearly. Uh, other than the buzz and like the 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 image of Riz Ahmed all done up, like the the heavy metal drummer that he portrays in the film, um, I didn't really do any research into the thing. I, I I knew I was going to watch it. I just had no idea when. So I guess I'm thankful for you uh, to give me an excuse to pull the trigger on it when I did. But um, yeah, the subject matter in a lot of ways, I, I thought of it as being like from a from a scripting standpoint, like al- almost perfect in in so many ways in in how it's constructed. Like the the way the characters are dimensioned um, and the predicaments that they find themselves in it it's like wow like if you look if you looked at this script as like like a math equation like a complex physics problem or something it's like wow that's a that that is some beautiful fucking math because you could not have designed these characters on the page better um, to to create to like facilitate drama like good good meaty drama um, and that was one of the things I, I found most striking about the movie. It was like, I found so, so many really good fundamentally sound, like elemental decision decisions were made during the production. That's like, wow, uh, sometimes it's not so much about being brilliant. It's about just like never fucking up even in the slightest. And uh, like a lot of the times that's what I was feeling when I was watching the movie. It was like, wow, this is, this could be a really tenuous product this could be a really fragile production that could really fuck itself (laughs) badly if they just made the wrong decision in one or two pivotal moments or something and it never never happened so by the time you get to the end of it i I walked away from it very satisfied i think that was a fantastic summary of it actually and i enjoyed uh, having to sit down and watch it again uh in order to you know do a bit of research before we sat down here today um, and it was really neat seeing it the first time through and kind of through the lens of like seeing his journey as he kind of accepts being death, you know, and, and understanding the, you know, the torment that that puts him through being a musician and whatnot. But now as I watched it the second time, I'm watching it and you see there's so many brilliantly lined up sequences where you realize all the stuff that gets revealed later on with his battle with addiction, like really being it's always on display it's just you're not quite absorbing it as you're watching the film the first time through because you're just interpreting what you see like you're seeing these sequences where you know his girlfriend who you desperately loves and you, it seems like they're having this beautiful connection but the second time through it the whole time you, it's like eerie because you're just seeing like how codependent he is and how desperate he is to keep her in his life through everything and it, it's actually like it was neat, like seeing how the actress was portraying it, where like she actually legitimately looked kind of terrified <laughs> as opposed to the first time through, I'm just like, oh, this is cute. They're just talking about old movies and stuff as they're driving around. It's like this time through, it's like, no, this guy's talking her ear off because he needs to constantly be engaging with her throughout anything they do. So yeah, no, very well done. Well said. Uh, I don't know if it was well said. It was, it was, it was a lot of word vomit. <laughs> I think I think I still taste it in the back of my throat, but I got it out somehow. Um, yeah, uh, so our our two lead characters in this film, um, who are like in, there's three major characters, but there's there's two characters who are largely in, involved in the drama. In this, uh, we have Riz Ahmed portraying Reuben Stone or Ruby, um, and Olivia Cook as Lou as Lou, uh, his girlfriend um, slash uh, partner in crime when a uh, when they have a band together. Um, 
And then also the, uh, I guess he's a, a teacher or a counselor of sorts. Um, counselor. The, yeah. Drug uh, counselor. Paul Racy. Uh, he was the fellow that won Best Supporting Actor, and deservedly so. Um, he he really has an incredible screen presence, and it's kind of funny looking looking at his filmography. Um, he's he's been working in the film industry for quite some time, for decades, mostly very small roles. But some of the productions he's involved in, this fellow was apparently in The Glimmer Man, <laughs> a Steven Seagal film. Um, and Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. So I've seen him on film, even if I didn't know who he was. But uh, this fella has a really interesting life story uh, to go along with with his character portrayal in the film. Like, apparently he was raised by deaf parents. Um, he is a hearing person, but um, him being a Vietnam vet is apparently taken from true true life stories. Um, but yeah, he has an incredible presence. And there's there's one scene in particular that we'll we'll get to that I thought really that was basically like the Oscar clip moment for him anyway. Um, although apparently I didn't actually watch it, but the, the Oscar show this year, they didn't have clips. Uh, so a lot of people didn't get to see that lovely moment of uh, screen history. Um, but yeah, uh, the characterizations in this are really strong. Like all the performances are fantastic, but um, I know this director, he doesn't have a dense filmography, but he has worked as a film editor um, and one thing that I always thought was really fascinating um, in, in talking with you all these years about movies um, was uh, just how important editing is to filmmaking. In a lot of ways, you could argue it basically is filmmaking to some extent. And uh, The Departed is often a movie that comes up in discussions we have because that movie has such a curious editing style when compared to like conventional editing techniques but the thing that makes it so beautiful is they give you the information you need and they get right the fuck out. Like, like, like it, it's, it's really fascinating the way scenes are constructed in that film where things will just abruptly cut off, but it's because the point, the point was made. There's no, there's no need to pack it with noise after that fact. It reminds me actually of action movies in a lot of ways, the way it's edited, like, because there's no bullshit. Like, and, and it's especially an absurd concept because it's a Scorsese feature where Scorsese kind of made his bread early on by having all those sequences where it was long and drawn out and every detail is taken into account. But with this, it was very concise and it's like, okay, we're gonna build this awesome scene. But the second there's anything that's not moving the plot forward, it's done. Cut it off. Yeah. And, and the fat is thoroughly trimmed in this film. Like it, it is still a two hour film, but it does not feel it. And I mean, the, the breadth of time that we cover with the story is, is quite a lot. Like this is over several months. Apparently, like I, I want to say in real life, maybe this story would have, would have to take longer, but for the purposes of this particular story, which is very tight, uh, it takes place over like a course of several months um, and you feel it. Like there's, there's several transition points and the markings of those transitions are so skillful. Like, like the one that jumped, that, stands out the most in my head in this moment is uh him pounding out a rhythm on a on a on a slide um he makes a connection with a, a young boy at the at the asl school uh where he's attending and immediately like the next cut is a different season of the year because that all you needed to learn from that scene was that he's he's a, he's embracing the journey like he was fighting the transition now he's in it and now we don't need to know what happened in between there because probably nothing important happened other than him learning ASL and 
probably not terribly fascinating to watch in in a in a really tightly edited film i do like though like there's that sense of dread that they have early on when he he does decide to check himself into it's a rehab so kind of quickly kind of summarize it it's yeah he's like Trevor had said, he's a heavy metal drummer with his girlfriend on the road, experiences hearing loss. Um, it's revealed that he's actually an addict and that, you know, the combination of the two is really triggering him and thus he needs to seek treatment. So he finds a setup where he'll be staying in an inpatient facility that doubles. It's a community that's near a deaf school. So he can not only understand and become a member of the deaf community, but also you know, make sure that he's not relapsing onto his various addictions. So yeah, really though, the sense of dread it conveys of seeing like how terrified this guy is to sit in his own head. Like he has no problem, like diving in, learning a whole new language, learning a whole new culture on the fly. Like, you know, he's a little hesitant at first, but the second you tell him to just sit in a room with his own thoughts, he panics and freaks out and he wants to tear the world down. And yeah, it's, amazing that for so many people like you know seeing where they would lie on that spectrum it's like for some people like the way this film film kind of plays out at least for me was it almost originally it teases you into feeling like you know if you're not deaf and all of a sudden became deaf it's like is that the end of the world it's like you know how do you react to that even though there's clearly a thriving community of folks who have managed their whole lives with no hearing and are just fine and happy but for some, that seems like the end of the world. You need to rush out and consider the cochlear implant, which is you know, heavily featured in the plot of this movie. And the cochlear implant, I love how they portrayed that as well, because that is something that is a huge, huge like, topic of controversy within the deaf community. Um, there was a famous documentary from early 90s, if not late 80s, called Sound and Fury. And it was a story of a deaf family who had a child who had an opportunity to get the cochlear implant at a very young age. And it was kind of like, it was filmed in a very controversial sort of way where it was clearly the people hadn't done really their research about the deaf community. So they came across as very militant in this production is like saying like, no, we absolutely don't want this. Like you're, you're trying to, to rid us of, of the planet and this is awful. And, and meanwhile, you know, the daughter is so young, like she's just like, Oh, yeah, of course I want to consider that, you know, why not? But then when later in this movie, you actually hear kind of what cochlear implant is. And it's like, it's not what you were thinking. It's not this miracle cure all quick surgery that, you know, puts you right back to uh, where you were before you lost your hearing, or in the case, you know, never had your hearing gives you the ability to hear. It's a simulate. It's a simulation. Sounds like metal, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, it does have a tinny sound to it. And uh, I'm sure they did quite a bit of research into replicating the the audio uh, because we do get a lot of perspective moments where the soundscape of the film is designed in such a way that we inhabit the headspace of Riz Ahmed's character, Ruby, where when when he is rendered deaf uh, or very early in the film, we, we get to see that transition. And the filmmakers made it a point to make a huge distinction between those two those two modes basically like the early soundscape is very is very rich and dense and like oftentimes chaotic as is the later portions when we we get to see him existing in a hearing world minus the ability to hear and we get to see like and this is after like half an hour of living in the deaf world where there's 
tons of color and interaction going on, but not not the noise and chaos that, that inhabited the early goings of the film. Um, but yeah, the the sound design of the cochlear implant sequences was fascinating because uh, it, it is it's like a it's like an approximation of hearing, I guess, as as put through an electronic device to the point that for a person who has lived their whole life like me, like hearing, it sounds awful. Like it, it sounds abrasive. It sounds confusing uh, in that it doesn't dis- it doesn't distinguish between uh, like it doesn't prioritize layers of sound. Um, so like in a crowd sequence, which we do get, we get just utter chaos where thing, the loud shit's quiet and the quiet shit's loud to the point that you can't hear any of it. It's just noise. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating to, to see it all unfold. But I'm, I'm struggling to, to find something to grab onto to talk about in this moment. So I, I want to narrow the focus and just try to talk about the characters just for a sec. Uh, just so we can find something in particular to to latch on to. So Ruby's obviously the the one that we deal the most with, so it seems like most appropriate to go with him. Um, and let me just give you an, an example of what I was talking about when I was talking about um, the characterization and, and how skillfully it's crafted. So the first time we see Ruby on screen, um, the movie opens with him just the camera on him in a, in a black void because he's on stage getting ready to do a performance, which he nails. Like he, he is one hell of a drummer. Apparently Riz Ahmed dumped pretty much a year of his life into both learning ASL and drumming. And from a physical standpoint, and I'm guessing from a language standpoint, he nails it. He gives in a, a terrific performance. Um, but the, the montage that follows that, the, uh, the, <laughs> the infamous morning routine montage, I, I, I call it infamous because this is this is one of those things that is like film school 101 when you do it bad, but this film does it very, very well. But this, this guy's morning routine after a show, he lives in a camper with Lou. Um, he puts on music. He makes an extraordinarily healthy and probably disgusting to taste uh, breakfast for both him and his partner. Um, he dances with his partner and he also works out in the interim. So what you have here is a guy who is taking extraordinarily good care of himself to the point that he's drinking things that he knows taste bad, but it's good for you. He works out before he even starts his day. Uh, he's listened to music more than once before he's even set foot outside. Um, you have a character that is positioned perfectly to be the person who has the most visceral reaction to, to having their hearing taken away. I mean, most people, it's it's it would be a shock to your system, but this is a guy who uh, seemingly has taken good care of himself for the past four years anyway, um, and seem is probably on the straight and narrow. It feels like, hey, I'm doing this thing, I'm doing really well, and then. <laughs> well, I was going to say two things that jump out to me about that. With a, the opening with him playing that style of music, I think is really an awesome concept, just because. It's for there are people that find that type of music incredibly abrasive. So which kind of plays into eventually when he loses his hearing, it's like, you know, yes, you do lose music, but not all of it is necessarily good. You're never going to listen to everything and like everything, take everything in. So it's not the end of the world. And you can still convey the energy as he clearly does throughout that whole thing. If you don't have sound on, you still can clearly tell this guy's in full control on that stage. So it's kind of neat to take that in. 
What I thought was cool about that sequence you're describing is you're, you're right, all those things happen, but he doesn't put the music on until he wakes up Lou. And I thought that was neat too, because as he's going through all this process, again, it's all these abrasive sounds of things that you could easily live your life without. In fact, they, they're annoyances. You know, using the blender to make a smoothie isn't a sound that you're going to miss if you were to lose your hearing. Same with like hearing a coffee maker going and percolating and all that. It's not until he reaches the point where he finally is going to spend time with her that he puts the music on. And then it's this lovely sequence of them connecting with it. But up until that point, it's, it's again, it's even though it's framed in a way where it's this awful thing he experiences, there's so much of his day-to-day life where it's like, no, you don't need your hearing. It doesn't change anything. Yeah, it's a very good point. I hadn't thought of that. Uh, and in a lot of ways, like I, I want to say maybe the, the movie was trying to point out that he traded one addiction for another in the form of Lou, where, like you said, there's a, a codependency going on there. Um, and that's that's definitely laid out like very clearly later on in the film where uh, it's made known that uh, if he's suffering, she has kind of a symbiotic response of like a sympathetic response rather of kind of suffering with him. And we do see like when she rolls over in bed, she's, she's done self-harm. And uh, later on we see that she stopped doing that. But um, from a thematic standpoint, I I thought it was really fascinating how, how many transitions uh, these characters go through. And it's almost like she had a movie of her own that happened off screen because the way they came together apparently was due to their addiction problems. Like there's that moment when he's being interviewed by, by Paul Racy, the, the counselor at the deaf community. Um, how long have you been sober? And he says four years. And how long you've been with Lou? Four years. Um, and then when, when he does go and join that community, I, Lou and him have a separation of sorts, but they, they do come together again. But him joining that community and then um, after he gets the, the implant, um, it's like he's he's joining these new worlds and and speaking French may as well be speaking ASL. It's it's, it's like he it's like he's tossed into a brand new world several times over the course of just one film. Um, it's really interesting to see this particular character navigate that space because, like you said, he he's never unwilling. Um, it's just when when he's when he's isolated and when he's alone that his vulnerabilities really shine through. Only difference is he goes through quite a bit of growth. Uh, so when that happens later in the film, after he's gained some tools to deal with that and become more empowered, uh, his reaction to it's a lot different. Um, but yeah, really, really interesting character. I, I, I love how how subtle the performance is in so many ways. Like one thing I noticed was um, uh, when there's a there's a distinct transition point uh, when he's immersed in the deaf community uh, where he. Uh, he kind of goes back for his drug of choice in the form of Lou and he does some snooping on the internet when he's not supposed to uh, have contact with the outside world, at least digitally anyway. Um, and he looks up what she's been doing while he's been learning and growing. Um, and he, he makes it his mission uh, to raise money to, to get the cochlear implant because he, he feels that he has to do that in order to be with her. And that becomes his mission. I noticed like um, he stopped signing. Uh, pretty much all together and it's like a hard cutoff because for at least 20 30 minutes before that um, he's very much a part of that community and he's he's really like thriving honestly but there's that hard cutoff point where he starts talking at people and just relying on their lip reading 
without signing in tandem. Um, and, and his, his behavior, like his body language and everything, even, even Paul Racy's uh, uh, portrayal as the counselor, even he points out, it's like, you look like you're an addict. <laughs> and like you, you, you look like you have the, the desperate behavior of somebody who's trying to get a fix. And that, that was the brilliance too of that opening sequence you described, because that is like on one end, you know, it looks like a guy who's taking care of himself and he's on top of the world. But in actuality, that's also somebody who's fresh out of rehab, who has been instructed, you need to take care of your body. You need to do things to keep yourself, you know, healthy and active and constantly, you know, aware of all these things. And, you know, he physically transforms throughout this movie multiple times, um, and I think that's always a sign of great acting. And I think both him and um, Paul Racy, you see a lot of that where like they, you see them almost like deflate at times or in, you know, the case of Ruben, like he actually like looks like he's an addict, despite the fact that nothing physically has changed. Like, it's not like he went through some De Niro and, you know, raging bull type thing where he put on a bunch of weight at one point or it's like physically he's the same throughout. It's just the posturing. It's how he's, his mannerisms, like I said, and it's wonderfully subtle at times. Like I was saying before with um, having watched it the second time and this time through the lens of really just kind of focusing on his life as an addict, like just that one sequence in there in the diner when he first realizes that he's going deaf and he just goes outside that bum a cigarette. And it's such a casual sequence and, and it's seemingly like harmless thing, but you can just see it all over Lou's face that it's like, Oh, here we go again. Like right back to where we once were. And you realize just like how painful that must've been for this four year whirlwind of just anytime he's not around or even just when he runs out. Cause he gets up like 5.00 AM they say every day. Cause that's what he's been told by his sponsor. And, um, when he's going deaf, he hasn't told her yet. So his first thought is, Oh, I need to go find a doctor. But imagine being in her shoes now and like waking up and this guy that, you know, is battling this thing all of a sudden is in a town you've never been to that you just played a show at and he just disappeared and you have no idea where he's at. You have no idea what he's getting into. It's like she's this whole time. She's probably just been in terror, just like of what to expect to hear from him. You know, in actuality, he's trying to do the best thing for them as a couple. But, you know, it's unfortunately, that's the scars of that, that sort of behavior. Yeah, uh, all credit to Olivia Cook. Um, I, I hopefully we we get into her proper uh, because she deserves quite a bit of credit for making a lot with actually very little screen time. Uh, but her character's presence is felt throughout the movie largely because of like like you had mentioned her her reactions to him because this this movie is thoroughly like focused on him like squarely focused on just him. But like I said, the 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 depth to her character that's suggested is so skillfully weaved into the film that it almost feels like she's a lived in character to the point that, Oh, you, you totally could have followed her at that transition point. And you still would have gotten a good story. Um, Cause both of these, both of these actors really feel like, like people who know each other really, really well, such that a lot of things go unsaid, but just through simple things like looks and, and guttural reactions to things, like you said, him taking the cigarette seems innocuous to us the viewer until he comes back and you see her and immediately she's on the phone calling their sponsor um it's stuff like that that that's skillful filmmaking that's that's showing not telling and not in like a showy way that feels like you're you're being like haha i'm holier than thou it's like no that's efficient storytelling 
It literally the sequence right after he goes out and has a cigarette as they come back and and it's her calling the sponsor uh, for assistance. That's how they end up discovering this community. And just kind of what to what you're saying, like just seeing what they had ordered to eat because they're in this diner making the scene. And he has just a plate of like scrambled eggs because he's still on his health kick. And she has like a giant burger and fries. Like it doesn't even show her like eating it, but it's more so it's like here she's been adapting her lifestyle around his. And, you know, he has to always be taking in just like healthy foods, healthy, everything constantly. And for her, she's also in a moment of stress. He just went out and had a cigarette to cope with it. And her response is like, well, I'm going to get something junky that, you know, will help me get through this moment of high anxiety I'm experiencing. But it's like I say, it's it's not a type of movie where you're going to see like her like diving into it and really like absorbing. It. It's just this quick little flash, and it's like that says a lot for what it is, you know. Yeah, it it worked really really well. Um, that that whole stretch of the film when he is losing his hearing, when it's when when it's going in and out, uh, was massively effective to the point that's like, holy shit, this Darius Martyr guy, he could have a future in horror. Um, because unfortunately, the, you know, well, maybe not unfortunately, this is a thing that does happen to people um, at, you know, various stages of life. And the way Riz Ahmed conveys the thought process just through his like facial tics and whatnot and his body language, not dialogue. He's not a terribly verbose character unless he's uh, cornered and trying to problem solve for Lou on her behalf. Like, like, so whenever he gets hyperverbal, it's when he's trying to protect her. Like, oh yeah, we got to continue the tour because that's the thing that we on our, you know, four year love journey are doing in this moment. And if, if I can't continue the tour, then you can't continue the tour. And that can't happen because, you know, you'll start cutting yourself again or something. We can't have that. But in between that, he, he actually doesn't say a whole lot. It's mostly just a visual performance and like a physical performance. And it's really ably carried out. Um, one of the more effective scenes was um, when he's, when it's settling in, when it's setting in this, this idea of, I may not be able to hear anymore. Um, when he's waking up in the morning and just like, like tensing his jaw, like opening his mouth and he's standing in the shower and he just has this look that's not like sheer terror. It's just kind of like, uh, does not compute, like unable to process in this moment, but also unable to get away from this thought. Um, and then that carries over into him going to, I think it was a pharmacist's office, uh, just to like as a cry for help um, to communicate with this person via like writing on a notepad. That whole sequence, like his body language is like, yeah, that's been me on the side of a highway. <laughs> like just like it's it's a different kind of panic and terror that is... Un unknowable i guess <laughs> like you can't put a face on it but you know it when you see it um and it's it it's it was really effective to the point that like i, I was watching this with my girlfriend and she was kind of squirming because she she has that ability to project herself into some of the predicaments that film characters find themselves in and yeah it, it was uncomfortable but you know then the movie keeps going and we start to see that kind of the I guess the, the whole thesis of the community was uh, different, not disabled. Um, and that's, that's something that I thought this film really, really ably carried out. Like the, the message was very well delivered because the deaf community is not something that is spotlighted in film very often, uh, but this felt very, very genuine. 
um, neither overly positive nor negative. It was just like, oh, these these are fucking people. Like they exist among you, but how often do you actually see it on film? Yeah, no, they did a wonderful job with that, and it actually helps too. That it's you know that's where the combination of it being not only a deaf community but also a community for folks suffering from you know substance abuse. So you actually you're seeing people from all sorts of different backgrounds and you realize that like they're all communicating they're all like have this bond that you know and they've created their own new community as a result and and it's wonderful it's amazing um and i like that they have like subtle things in there like there's the one um gentleman that he meets when he first checks in who later you see is giving like a, a dance performance despite being deaf and that that's a big thing like in deaf community like they do dance they can feel bass and rhythm and all that just fine you know even easier if you have lights and stuff involved, but it's like, rather than having to do some big cheesy drawn out sequence, you know, they just have it kind of thrown in there. It's like, Oh yeah, by the way, they, they do just about everything anybody else does. They just can't hear. Yeah. Yeah. Actually the way that sequence was edited was really, was really interesting. Like it was, it was subtle in a clever way because it was so matter of fact to the point that it's like, Oh, it's, it's there. Like whether you noticed it or not, but and what I'm, what I'm talking about is that whole sequence, the first two thirds of it is shot from an angle that just shows Riz Ahmed and all of his classmates in the form of all these little kids. That is a weird feeling, which, which it reminded me of uh, doing boxing because uh, half, of, half of the gym was children and then the, the, there was a changeover where all the adults would come in, but I would do both because I just wanted more time in there. And so like the first half of the day, it felt like being like the only adult in like the neighborhood Taekwondo school or something. <laughs> it's like, I feel really out of place here, but it, it was so charming because I've, I've been in that, in those shoes before. Like I had the benefit of speaking the same language as all those kids, but being like the one adult who is being treated, the one adult in the room who is being treated as a child, whereas everyone else in the room is a child and being treated as such. It, it's massively intimidating, but like you said, he handled it really, really well. <laughs> but the way that sequence was shot, it just shows one one angle of, of the audience. And it's not until we're leaving the room that we actually see who's performing. And even then it's from behind. It's it's just like, oh yeah, the dance the person dancing was one of his roommates, basically. It's oh, never would have guessed. <laughs> um but yeah, the movie's filled with tons of small moments like that. Like one thing that I uh I I noticed that maybe it's just me making something out of nothing, but um, when he is losing his hearing, he actually does attempt to do a couple of performances. Um, he does do a pair of shows, I think, with Lou. Um, and the one of them we kind of like breeze past, I think. Uh, so I guess he actually alludes to it later. I think he said it wasn't so good, but we yeah. don't see that. All we see is that he still did it, even mm -hmm. though he was told by the doctor, don't fucking do that. Otherwise, you're going to lose 100% of your hearing, and, uh, hearing instead of 80%. And that's where that genre of music, too, being a, a less mainstream one, it, it is difficult to determine if you're not a, really into it, if it was a bad performance or not. Because for a lot of people, it's just gibberish. You know, it's just like loud banging or whatever. It's like, well, you look good doing it. So, Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the the visceral quality to the performance not my personal cup of tea i do like me some heavy metal but different different brand of metal metal is that, that kind of music where there is subgenres stacked on top of subgenres to the point that's like 
how the, how do you know that? Like, how do you make these distinctions? But not quite my cup of tea, although just watching the physicality of the performance is enough. And that that's part of the benefit of having drumming uh, be his instrument of choice is one, it factors into the hearing loss thing, but two, it's very primal. It's very visceral. It's very easy to understand and digest from a visual standpoint, regardless of what you know about music. Um, but what I was saying about his uh, performance, uh, I think the show that he walks out of, uh, because he had he has a breaking point where he it it sits it settles in while he's on the stage with Lou, and he just dips into the crowd and heads into an alley, um, and confesses to her that he can't hear. But what I noticed during that show is I think it's the only one he does with a shirt on, and in in my eyes I looked at that as like a a sign of his confidence wavering where it's like, this is a guy that, you know, he's in very, very good shape. He's a drummer. There's a lot of, you sweat a lot when you're drumming. <laughs> and like, it's not surprising that a lot of drummers do it shirtless, but um, he, he strikes me as somebody who's maybe, you know, like a little bit body proud because he does take good care of himself. You can't invest that much time into yourself without, you know, feeling some sense of accomplishment. But in that sequence, he's, he's covered up. It's like he's, he's comes across as much more vulnerable than we'd seen him up to that point. And it's, it's marks a perfect visual cue that's he's, he's not right. No, that's, that's a great point because it's kind of the same thing when he's introduced to the deaf community where you have this guy who essentially when you first introduced to him, like, you know, he's a loud drummer, which already is going to give him kind of, you know, just a bit, that energy level that he brings when he, he enters into a room, but then also like when he's interacting with Lou, he's so almost on this manic high where he just can't stop talking. He's just so excitable. And you see him actually like in moments before a show at one point, like kind of interacting with people. And he, he is very jovial, very like, you know, he's talkative kind of guy. And then all of a sudden you take all that away. And now he's thrust in this community where he can't like fake his way through anything. He has to be, you know, that he has to adapt and learn. And um, yeah, it was really fascinating seeing him kind of shrink into the chair and like covering his mouth, despite the guy kind of telling him over and over again, like, I, I can't hear you. I need to see your lips. And it's like, he's still just like, I think that's another indicator of him just like kind of trying to be invisible or trying to be a fly in the wall, which is absolutely impossible in that community because the only way you can communicate is you have to be in the person's face. That's why they bang on tables. That's why they wave in people's face or touch even because it, you really are shunning somebody if you're covering your face or like not making yourself open. So yeah, yeah I think you're onto something with that for sure. Yeah, actually it was kind of cute. My uh, girlfriend pointed out to me, I, I, I didn't like put as much weight on it as, as uh, like until she pointed it out. But when he's introduced to the deaf community, um, it's the I think it's the dancer uh, is like sitting on the steps catching a smoke break. And then uh, Paul Racy, who plays Joe, by the way, uh, Joe uh, greets Ruby and like is starting to bring him in. They have a little ASL exchange there. Um, the movie is not subtitling this just yet because Ruben doesn't understand. And he's our he's our framing device. So if he doesn't understand, we don't understand. Very skillful filmmaking. Makes sense. Um, but, but what she pointed out was uh, Joe very swiftly turns his back to that guy. And she was like, oh, that's such a catty move. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's like, we, neither of us understood what words were exchanged, but it's like, yeah, actually, if you, if you want to be kind of 
kind of bitchy to someone i'm sure that's a good way to do it it's like i don't i don't care to hear what you have to say <laughs> you disgust me <laughs> catching a smoke break when you're supposed to be cleaning the farm <laughs> uh great point great point <laughs> but yeah the i i love so much of the uh the visual storytelling um and this this has more to do with filmmaking so um i'll just go on about that but um when we're when he's greeted by Joe when he's brought into this community. Um, he clams up for a good solid 10, 15 minutes of screen time. He's a lot happens. Like he's shown all sorts of different places. He's introduced to a school. He's introduced to everyone in this building. He's going to be living in this, this farmhouse. Every, every conversation is happening with mute lip movements and ASL, none of which he understands. Um, his introduction to the group is done for him on his behalf. It's absolute silence um, for us, the, the hearing people watching this film. It's, it's eerie. It's, it, feels, I, it feels like being the big kid in the Taekwondo school. <laughs> you feel really out of place. You feel really singled out because you're the only guy in the room that is truly the outsider in this moment. And it's intimidating and you feel for the guy because, again, Riz Ahmed has that quality as a performer that you empathize with him. And it has a really unsettling quality to it. But one thing I noticed with the, just the, the lensing of these scenes and it only, it only like clicked like, like half an hour ago, maybe <laughs> as I was talking. Um, but what I noticed with the framing of these shots is a, uh, like you said, he covers his mouth during some of his early action interactions with Joe. And he's told like, you, you can't be doing that. I, I, I read lips. That's how I receive your messages to me. And you don't know ASL yet. So that's all we got in this moment. Um, that's just something he, he does at that point in the story. He gets over that eventually. But um, the way bodies are framed in the film is uh, adjusted over time, depending on his state of mind. So when he first joins that community, a lot of the shots of him are his head. And, and there's even like blurring, like there's even like a depth of field effect that it, it isolates him in the frame. He's literally the only face you can see clearly and everybody around him is just a blurry haze because he doesn't know them. He can't understand them. When he picks up ASL, when he's able to communicate, the frame gets expanded so we can see everybody from the waist up because guess what? That's where all the communication is happening. And then I noticed in that transition point when he was selling all of his stuff in his RV, when he was convincing his roommate to do that for him, to, to raise money for the cochlear implant, when he was no longer signing, uh, I noticed that the framing transitioned back to mostly just his head. Like most of that conversation he has with Joe, it's mostly tight headshots. And Joe is signing the whole time. And for the most part, he's not signing a return. And it, it, it's such simple, fundamental stuff. But like from a storytelling standpoint, it's like, yeah, good job. You, you did it right. <laughs> like, like a lot of people probably would have overlooked that. But the, the, this particular production, they did it right. And, and kudos to them. It was really impressive. No, I, you, absolutely. And then on top of that, too, the actor in that moment, too, he's going back, he's not quite covering his mouth because he has been immersed in this community long enough to know better, but you can see now that he's trying to kind of go back into his old world of now that he has, or he's preparing to get the implant fully uh, tuned up. He's, he keeps catching himself with his hand near his mouth at, from time to time because he's defaulting again to like 
where he was, which is not excluding all these things he learned, all the things. And it really just makes it that much more painful for Joe in that moment of just realizing it's like, I put in all this work that he endeared himself so lovely. Like he, he melded in just fine. He seems happy and yet it, it's all gone now. Like, just like that. Well, what's especially remarkable about that, that scene is that um, you sent me a clip earlier today uh, because you are my brother and we do text each other often, mostly stupid wrestling stuff. You sent me a clip of Jake the Snake Roberts at not such a great point in his life. He's doing great now, as far as I know. DDP yoga, brother, <laughs> all the way. Um, but him cutting a promo at a very low point in his life was rambling and incoherent and sad to watch. Like I said, he's doing okay now, folks. But um, Riz Ahmed in that scene is basically the same. A whole lot of noise, a whole lot of words are being thrown at Joe. I, I got fuck all from it. And in fact, he's, he's kind of like telling himself, he's actually kind of talking to himself. Only problem is he's not listening because he keeps reiterating like life fucking passes. Life fucking passes. It's like, huh, maybe think on that for a second. You know that hearing thing that you used to do? I don't think you can do it anymore. Maybe life fucking passes and get used to it. Like maybe accept the happiness that you found for yourself and get comfortable with it. Cause that, that's the one message that Joe keeps trying to impart on him that the sooner you get comfortable with the silence, the sooner you'll get comfortable with, with your life, with you as a person. Um, and as Matt had said, like the scenes of tension uh, during these kind of nice scenes of him, becoming a part of the community or him locked in a room by himself being told to write. And I thought that was really striking because not only does it give the actor, you know, a chance to kind of like stretch their wings and, you know, throw a, a shit fit because it's been bubbling up. The audience expects it and he, he sells the fuck out of it. But um, the choice of, of sitting alone in a room writing, I thought was really effective because, because the idea is it's like, your world no longer has sound, but you can still communicate with yourself with that voice that you, you no longer hear on a notepad. And it's kind of like holding a mirror up to, like a, a, an audio mirror to yourself where it's like that this is, this is now your medium for talking to yourself the way you may have done in the past. Um, but he, he doesn't even tell him it has to be coherent or not. That, that's Joe's process. It's just go be, be alone with yourself in your head just carry it out on a piece of paper. I think in this day and age, especially like that's such a terrifying concept for such a large portion of the population to take away their cell phone and say, you have to be locked in a room and you can do nothing but write on a blank piece of paper or stare out a window. You can't like, draw no drawing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, it, it's such a terrifying concept for something that's seemingly so simple and stupid, but uh, I, I thought that was a wonderful device. And, and, you know, it really is just like, yeah, I, I, when I think on that, it's, I love the fact that it's the audience almost has to question. It. It's like, is this scarier to me than actually learning how to so do sign language and endear myself to the deaf community? Like, is this actually harder to sit in this room just with my own thoughts and have no distractions and no TV and no cell phone? Like, I, I mean, I guarantee you, if you did a poll, like that would be a lot closer than it should be. We'll say that like just in terms of difficulty. But. 
no TV and no beer make Homer go something something. Yeah, uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I think the idea of just being being okay with being okay is is kind of our our generation and a half's greatest struggle in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, uh, one thing I noticed there, and, and I pointed this out to my girlfriend, that donut looked really fucking sad. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe introduces this idea of, of journaling. So he's like, hey, so Ruby, you wake up really fucking early, right? And he's like, yeah, like, is 5.30 too early? He's like, I don't know, man. He's like, well, we'll do five. Yeah, that, that's reasonable. He's like, fuck. <laughs> but, um, he, he sweetens the deal by saying, I'll put on a pot of coffee for you. And then he doesn't mention the donut, but there is a donut there every time. It's it's part of the ritual, and it looks so fucking sad. <laughs> like that donut looked terrible. And as soon as he, so folks at home, if you haven't seen the movie, you shouldn't be listening to this one. But um, when Ruben first sits down to do some writing, he takes his his mug of coffee and his little plate with his donut, and. I, I immediately was like, he's not eating that. <laughs> like, like that was what my gut told me in that moment. He's not eating that. It's <laughs> like when you're presented a, a birthday cake at a wrestling event. It's like, they're not, <laughs> they're not eating that. No, that, that's going in somebody's face. That's going in JR's lap or in the King's face. <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, he, he sets it on the table. And one thing I noticed, and I don't know how consistent this was. This is just an in-the-moment observation I made. Uh, he sets it on the table, and sure enough, he, that doesn't go in his mouth. He smashes it. Like, he, he pounds on the table, but he takes it all out on the donut. But what's, what was fascinating about that moment is that he smashes it, and then he collects all the pieces again into a little mound. And he smashes it again, but then he, he, like, he sweeps up after himself with his hands. And I noticed that... The, I. I feel like that's his process. Like, like, I mean, the act of drumming comes across as like a violent, intense thing, but multiple times in the film, he does that where he fucks up or he, he explodes, but then his first reaction is like, oh, to make good. Like all the time, every time he gets in hot water with Lou, he like flips the fuck out, like really fucking bad early in the movie. But then he's like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> but, you know, that's addict behavior, I would imagine. But, um, also, when he sneaks internet use, which he's not supposed to do, he's not supposed to have a phone or internet or outside communication until he's ready to go out. Um, the first thing he does in the next scene, again, very efficient editing. We see him like pounding nails into into like an awning on the roof or something. It's because he feels guilty. And like Joe's like, the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, you don't have to do that. You're here to heal. <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he's he's a fixer by nature, yeah, like, and that's that's the whole deal. Where it and kind of comes out at the culmination of his his plot point with uh, Lou, but um, yeah, it really is kind of a, a neat thing because it's consistent too. Like you know, be it him taking care of her, making breakfast every morning, even when he runs out. Like I said, like from her perspective, it's terrifying when he runs out to the pharmacist, you know, because she has no idea if he's dead in a gutter somewhere. But in his mind, he's he's doing the right thing. It's like, oh, I'm going to take care of this before she even wakes up. And then it's all dealt with. Even when he races off to get the implant, same sort of deal. It's like he has a freak out because he checks online, sees that she's performing solo. And he feels like, oh, my God, I'm going to be replaced you know, by a machine. So he has to run out and do everything in his power to resolve everything. And that's what leads that that powerful sequence with Joe. 
And it, it's so sad because all the words coming out of his mouth, you're right. It, it, it's a word salad. Like none of it's really truly coherent, but the heart's there. Like the intentions are all good. It's all saying like, no, listen, like I need her. She needs me. I need all this. But it's like, when you're taking it from Joe's perspective, it's like, you literally are think it's okay to come here after you gave the middle finger to our whole community by getting this controversial surgery but you're also asking me for potentially a loan for like $40,000 and you're an addict and you think that this is appropriate. Oh, and you want to spend a month just couch surfing with us until you tell, put up the double fuck you and run off with your girlfriend and never, ever sign again and never, ever engage in the community. I mean, it's insane, but that is like, he's just in his, from the perspective of Ruben, it's like, this is what I need to do to fix this situation. Yeah. And, and all credit to the filmmakers. You, you get both of those perspectives during that conversation. That's why that scene is, is an Oscar clip because, because you really do get both ends of it. It, it, Joe's face in particular, like I, I, I feel like that expression he makes, it's like, if you want to look up disappointed in the dictionary, it's either a clip of Kevin Sorbo with a goatee yelling disappointed to the heavens or it's Joe making that face uh, to Ruben because it's just like utter dismay and disappointment. Like you came so far, you were doing so well and you know you were doing well. Only problem is you're fixated on this idea of thank you for, for finding the right words. I, I said a lot, I said a lot to say a little, but he's a fixer. I think is the right way to phrase that. That's what he was trying to do with the implant was he, he, broke protocol by touching the outside world and, and snooping on Lou. And it led to him having a knee jerk reaction of feel of negating all the progress that he had made developing as a person living in the, in the deaf community and treating it as a problem to be fixed as opposed to just a state of being to, to inhabit. And yeah, that I, I'm really glad that you used that phrasing because that, that kind of solves that problem for me. <laughs> Thanks. I think too, like, again, just like the subtlety to it, which really is to me the key with this movie, like just like little moments, like in the early conversation, uh, you know, before all of this goes down where it's Ruben and, and Lou and they're just driving around town and he makes a casual joke about how he used to think Jeff Goldblum with his dad because they looked alike. And, it, you know, it's revealing that it's like he didn't grow up with a father figure at all. And now you have this moment where you can just see all of that like playing out where he's just so oblivious in that moment to the fact that Joe has done everything you could have wanted a father to figure to do for you in the situation. And it didn't register one bit. Like he has no emotion for Joe in this moment. Like he is so focused on himself and getting back together with Lou. And it's just heartbreaking because you can just see like Joe, on the other hand, had the different perspective of just like bonding so well and, and seeing so much progress and, and feeling like it's like this is what I'm on this earth to do is, is to help folks, you know, who were in this position, you know, get back on their feet. And he just kicked it all out from under him in one moment. And it, it's heart wrenching. It, it, it really is. Yeah, it, it's an incredibly heavy sequence. And um the editor and the director really did Paul Racy a solid by allowing his moments to really, really breathe. And even the conclusion of that scene, they hold on him a little longer than I think other films may have. 
and it, it's really powerful, really effective stuff. And thanks for pointing out the Jeff Goldblum thing, uh, because that happens very, very early in the film. But in that moment, I, of course, I noticed the dialogue because Jeff Goldblum, 90s kid, obviously. But I, I didn't put that together, that he was that was the film's way of telling us, oh, he wasn't raised with a father. Um, he does explicitly state that later in the film. Um, but yeah, I, it didn't register with me that it, it actually is imparted to you in a way very early in the film, like the first 10 minutes, basically. And yeah, that, that adds an even deeper layer to his interactions with Joe. That's like, wow, you, you really didn't get like just how much this guy went out on a limb for you and like how much this guy was probably filling a gap that you've probably been missing out on for quite some time. Um, but there's one aspect of the film that we haven't even touched, like surprisingly, like I'm actually kind of glad with how this conversation has been playing out, but there is a third act to this film, which marks another massive transition point in the story. And, and in fact, we move to a totally different country. Um, but that's not that's actually not too too big of a transition being as this is actually like a highly mobile story in terms of geography like i mean the first act they're in an rv it's not until he joins the deaf community that hey that thing that joe keeps talking about stillness occurs where he's physically no longer moving anywhere he is literally physically still for, for the first for the first and almost only time in the film hmm that's called good filmmaking. <laughs> like, um, but uh, yeah, he, uh, he pursues Lou to the point of getting the cochlear implant, which I'm pretty sure this was actual surgery footage that they showed during the very brief sequence um, meant to highlight just how invasive and grisly it is. Yep. Um, and they do give him the implant and the, uh, let's talk about the scene where they turn it on. Cause we did talk about what it sounds like, but what, what did you think of that sequence in particular when he goes back for like his follow-up? I think it's brilliant because that that's the whole thing. Like I was fortunate enough to, to use that for foreign, to take ASL courses for my foreign language, you know, in college. And, you know, it opened my eye up to a lot of different things that is very easy to be oblivious to. You know, that's just, unfortunately, the way things are. And so, you know, the cochlear implant for a person who's hearing, like myself or you, you know, if you just hear the basic descriptor, it sounds like, oh, it's, it's a surgery. And, you know, once the surgery is implanted, everything goes back to normal. It's like, you don't realize it, it literally is just a really high-tech crutch to give you like the last bit of being able to maintain your life without having to, to adapt, you know, for most folks, they're going to have to understand that you're going to have to make changes. You're going to have to understand, learn a new language. You're going to have to learn a new culture, but there is a small segment of the population, typically older folks where they are unwilling to do that. And so this seems like the quick fix. And so when you first get that, you're, you're assuming, especially with a movie framed around a musician, that this is going to be the turning point. And he'll go back to doing his live shows and get redemption. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe it takes the angle where he hears for a bit and then realizes he never needed it all along and he can still perform. But no, this is real life. He turns it on expecting the quick fix because he clearly isn't the type that's going to read up on it or pay any attention to what the doctors say. And it's shit. 
it's pure shit across the board. It's awful. First thing you're thinking is you spent 40 grand on that. That's fucking off. Yeah, it, it's pretty awful. And the, uh, again, this director probably has a future in horror because the, the couple of minutes we spend trying to adjust it, we hold on him while the doctor is making adjustments to like the frequency or what have you on the device. And it's, you could argue it sounds better at times, but it it's like between like a shit sandwich and a shit burrito. Like it's, it's, it neither is a good option. Um, and it's, it strikes me as the kind of situation that like, like we both said, if you, if you have not existed with hearing, I could see this being, really great honestly where it's like oh you, you can hear like like say like a child or something um ha- having having that available to you yeah that that that's your that's your reality it's different from mine but you know that that's a way of living but for this guy who has not only been hearing but also has thrived in the hearing world for his entire life this this is probably intolerable and you can see it on his face where he he does he came into this situation looking for a quick fix fix and you can tell he's like grossly let down by it um but he's still resolute he still has a mission so he's going to make the most of it to the point that he hops on a plane and flies out to France or Belgium uh to meet up with Lou who uh apparently um what what we glean from from uh details spoken in the film not so it's not exposition it's more just like stuff that's thrown out there you either get it or you don't uh she was raised without like i think her parents split up so she knew her father but she didn't live with him for most of her her youth uh she lived with her mother who committed suicide um which probably you know caused a great deal of trauma and you know she ended up becoming an addict but then she met ruby and they brought each other up out of that um but her father is still alive and kicking and so she kind of went back to him and and a scene that we we actually didn't talk about too much uh it's a really explosive scene um is is when she, she kind of makes the decision for ruby that he's resistant to the, to the idea of joining the deaf community towards the middle of the film and she sees the writing on the wall and she even tells him such that if if you do harm to yourself, I will follow suit, and we'll we'll both come crashing down together. You you need to fix yourself. You need to address your problems head on, and I can't be there for you. Uh, so we actually have this extended sequence of the of her basically hopping into an Uber to go to the airport and him begging her to stay. All the while he can't hear, so he's doing his best to read her lips, and it, it's. It's one of those scenes that has a lot of layers to it where the emotionality is probably more important than anything being said. Um, All you need to know is that uh, for the past four years, she's basically been his, his everything and, and her likely the same only difference is she recognizes something that he doesn't in that uh, he has a problem that can't really be fixed the way he wants it to be. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because that really, in hindsight, thinking about that, it really makes you reveal like, again, it's like, despite all the progress he makes with with the deaf community and learning how to live like that, like it means so little to him at the off chance that he can get back together with her. 
Like that's the only thing that drives him throughout the whole movie. And so, yeah, it, it really is like a sad sequence of him. Like that's, she's all that he has in the world, essentially, despite all these sequences where clearly all these kids look up to him. He has that teacher that he clearly has a little bit of like a bond going on with. Like he has all these friends that he gets to sit down at a dinner table with and like have conversation with while they eat. Like it, he has a pretty great setup and fuck it all. Like he, he needs to run off and, and be with her no matter where it is, even if it means racing off to a foreign country, you know, and despite really having just adjusted back to hearing again with an implant that isn't that great. Well, it it's, it, like I said, from, from the ground up this, this script, like I, I know this script like changed hands many times. Apparently we have a writer and a, and a, and his brother apparently uh, So Derek C uh, in France and his brother worked on the script. And then the director also had a hand in it as well. Darius Martyr. Um, we also had two different actors slotted in for these roles. Dakota Johnson was supposed to be Lou, and then Matthias Schonertz was supposed to be Ruby. Um, but obviously, they didn't. I I don't know who that is. <laughs> Matt's making a face at me. <laughs> I was like, "The fuck is that?" <laughs> um, I don't know who that is. But point is, this this story was gestating over like many, many, many years. In fact, the director claims like he spent like thirteen years searching for actors or something. That's nuts. Um, but yeah, the character dynamics are, are really fascinating in, in how they, they come together in this moment where it's, it really is like the, the behavior of an addict. And what I, was, what I was trying to get at there in that word vomit I just spewed out there is, is that uh, from a script writing standpoint, the, the outline of these characters must have been like a, a whole book, basically. Like these characters are extraordinarily well fleshed out, whether or not that came down to decisions made by the actors or the writer or director, it doesn't really matter. Point is there's a lot of storytelling. There's a lot of biography that isn't expressed concretely on the screen, but the quality of the performance makes you feel that, Oh, I'm, I'm watching a person with a past and, and the, the layer of him being an addict is something that for whatever reason was, not as apparent for me, um, but I'm really glad on your second viewing that you made that a priority to focus on that because now that you're talking to me about it, now that we're going back and forth, it's it's all over this movie. Like it's a huge part of the story, and it's it's an essential layer to to this particular character. That as I as I said at the very top of the recording, basically, I didn't even really go into too much detail about that. It's already a very solid character, but when you add that extra layer into it wow, that's, that's monumental stuff that really enhances the drama and not in an artificial way. Um, it really adds logic to a lot of the decision-making that occurs, especially towards the you know third act of the film. Um, but yeah, that breakup scene was definitely another potential Oscar moment. Um, and it's really fascinating, actually. Like I don't know how true this is, um, but I've seen statements saying that uh, the film was apparently shot over like 24 days or something. Huh. Like short and apparently they only did like two takes for most of the scenes and to me that's just like that's nuts i i believe it i mean i i haven't seen all of the oscar worthy performances this year by any stretch um but i'm hard pressed to believe that i don't 
Like, I really believe that no matter what I take from seeing, you know, Anthony Hopkins, um, I'm still going to think he got robbed because I thought this was a masterclass in, in acting, like from top to bottom. Um, and, you know, he probably lost out largely because of the fact that he's still a young up and coming performer that will probably have many, many other amazing roles ahead of him, especially following this performance. Um, I love the setting too of taking it to a foreign country that's somewhat familiar, you know, it's France. So, it, you know, for the most part as an American, it, it has very, a lot of similarities, but it's subtle things. It's like, the conversation he's having with the father that kind of fills out Lou's backstory, you're realizing it's like how difficult that is. And they don't, again, they're, they resist the urge to be ham fisted and showcase what he's hearing with the cochlear implant. We sing at the table, having eggs with his <laughs> essentially father-in-law. Um, you know, it, it's this moment where it's like, you realize it's like something as subtle as like an accent or just the way people's like mouths move. Like they don't have as exaggerate. He doesn't have as exaggerated of a speech pattern as some of the folks he's, he's known in the States. You know, he's, he's more focused on his food than facing him. So, you know, cause he's unaware of, you know, how you're supposed to communicate if somebody can't hear, you know, it, it's just, it's like such a like casual sequence. that should be nothing, but it, it carries such a, a huge amount of weight and I think too, like it was super cool, like that they made Lou coming from an affluent background. It's like you realize, like for a lot of people, just associate heavy metal music with you know street kids, you know punk rock, whatever. It's like especially when you add his his addict addiction on top of that. But it's like in this case, it's like no, no, no. Like this is high concept stuff. Like this is just like it's so post punk. It's like become like this like high end music almost she actually has a backing of like because she's probably an indie artist that you know is getting good rave reviews and whatnot this isn't just like some kid like living on the street they drive around in a forty thousand dollar rv you know like these there's money there like she has a means to come back to this life in france that you know many people would envy you know in a world frankly a world that he's incredibly uncomfortable in and i thought there's something beautiful about his, his performance there at the dinner party where it's like, you can tell like he's incredibly uncomfortable at the same time. I feel like he's gone through so much of a more difficult culture shock with having to endear himself to the deaf community that he can blend in easier. Cause unlike that community where you have to be engaged constantly in order to gain anything, like now he's amongst all these rich hoity toity types who are too busy focusing on getting drunk and laughing and, showing one another up that he can just kind of sink into the background, which as we've seen multiple times throughout is kind of his default when he's uncomfortable. So, but then like you add to that, the fact that what he's hearing is this awful grating metallic, just tinging noise throughout. And then they do a performance where they're going to, you know, sing in French, this like weird you know, homage to her dead mother, which is like such a creepy thing thought in a lot of ways especially given the conversation they had earlier where he revealed you know the father revealed the story about how that was a huge turning point in Lou's life and he thinks it's appropriate to do something like that uh, purely based on the fact that it's his birthday and it's like you can see that there's a disconnect and you know she her performance in that is very like touching too because clearly she's incredibly uncomfortable with it but she's also 
in a place now where she can at least like live with it versus before that probably would have been an incredibly triggering moment, which would have caused, you know, whatever horrible things happened in her past. So it, it's just a crazy sequence that comes kind of out of nowhere, to be honest with you. But again, it's, it's subtle and it's brilliant. And yeah, I, it's this movie really, like I said, is it, it may, anytime I can watch a feature like this, where it's like every sequence seems to carry weight. I'm always impressed. Yeah, that that's kind of what I was getting at with uh, talking about the Departed. It was just the efficiency of the edit and the storytelling that every every moment feels very deliberate um, and weighty, and you very much get that with this film. Um, you're you're totally right though. It does feel like it comes out of nowhere, and yet somehow it it doesn't. Um, I mentioned transitions being kind of like a major theme in the film, and like I said. Ruby with his conversation with Joe emphasizes that life fucking passes. And he, that message, he hasn't gotten that his own message just yet, but during the whole France sequence, um, I thought it was really fascinating comparing it uh, to his experience in being thrust into the, the deaf community where yes, it is a new, it is being thrown into a, a new community, a new language, uh, a new world, essentially but it's it's so uninviting, um, mostly because of the soundscape created by the cochlear implant. We spend a lot of time in his head, and it's it's abrasive. It's it's difficult um, as a person who's experienced hearing for thirty years. Um, but what's fascinating about it is that the being deaf and having other people who can speak a language with you, having a culture that you can join, is incomparable. Because I, I don't imagine that I don't imagine that there's communities for for people that have artificial hearing. Like I'm I'm sure there are like groups and stuff, but I don't imagine there's the same kind of culture, the same the same kind of norms that spring up. You know, when you have a community and and enough like multi generation families and stuff coming up with that. So it's like, yes, yes, you have an approximation of hearing now. But nobody can relate to you now, like like even 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 other deaf people can't really quite perceive what you do in this moment. So he's he's isolated while while attempting to rejoin the thing that he thought he lost. Um, and a lot of the movie, at least this chunk of it, is is him having to come to the realization that you what what has passed has passed, and just embrace what you have and his unwillingness to do that. Um, but yeah, that, that party sequence was kind of the perfect staging ground um, for re- relaying all these themes because it, it is utterly alienating. It's, it's hard to listen to. It's hard to watch. And you can tell that he probably didn't talk to anyone at that party, even Lou, because it's impossible. <laughs> well, and they're, they're speaking a different language. Yeah. For starters. Yeah. And on top of that, it's the fact that even if they were all speaking English, he's, can still barely hear it. You know? I, I just think it, it's wonderfully framed in the sense that it really like for your average person off the street who knows very little about deaf community, because unfortunately there are, isn't much out there that unless you kind of seek it out, it's framed very much in a way throughout the whole movie where it, it makes you like your first gut response is supposed to be like, Oh my God, that's so awful. He lost his hearing. And it's like, no, no, there's a fix for that. There's a solution. There's a whole community, thriving community of people. There's a whole language. Like this is something that can easily be adapted to and fixed. But for whatever reason, like it, this movie makes you think like 
that is going to be more intimidating because you're viewing it through Ruben's lens. Exactly. This is more intimidating adapting to this new way of life than a lifelong battle with addiction that is going to plague every minute of your life for the rest of your life. Like he is much more difficulty processing. Like, no, I have to learn how to rethink how I communicate with people and, you know, rebuild like how I approach my day to day. It's like, no, no, no. Every moment of your life is that now because of these horrible things that have happened in your past. Like it, it's really, really fascinating to me in that, that regard. And yeah, I think that it probably blew a lot of people's minds, hence why it jumped up the chart so fast. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of details present that even if you didn't notice it, your brain probably did. And thank you again, Matt, for putting the right emphasis on the right syllable, uh, because you're absolutely right. Hearing or not, his addictions will be with him regardless of what state of being he's in. Um, and like you said, it's just that thing that it's that monster that's always there, even if the movie isn't explicitly drawing attention to it, even if our principal leading character isn't paying attention to it, it's always there. Um, which leads us to like the, the culmination of, I guess him, I guess, I guess this is him going cold Turkey on Lou, I guess, like finally, um, there's, it's a really powerful sequence where it, it starts like a dream actually like very appropriately so because we've spent the whole two hours of the movie following this guy on his journey and the the princess in, at in the castle is Lou <laughs> in in a foreign land even <laughs> um and yeah she just kind of like swoops in through through the window and this is before the party but um they have an exchange there but then when when they bed down for the night um they start to get cozy with each other and then she physically pulls away um she feigns needing water or something and immediately that that's that's like a trigger point where okay now we're gonna have real talk where they we're we were snuggling we were having a good time and then oh you need water um this this is the moment where they they both kind of have to mostly him but her as well they have to come to the realization that they it's not so much that they've grown apart it's that they've both hit massive pivot points in their lives and they've gone about it in very different ways such that they're actually, it's healthier for them to, to be apart. Cause like you had pointed out during the party, um, her having an affluent background, I think is really important. It's, it's again, it's the, the script and the film do not like beat you over the fucking head with it, but making certain transitions is easier uh, when you have a financial safety net and you have a fucking French mansion to fly away to in times of tension. <laughs> and you're trying to make it in the music industry and your father's a former or a current musician, I suppose, at least how he's portrayed. That's where he made his money, seemingly, mm -hmm. if he's performing musical numbers during his own dinner parties. So, um, yeah, it, it. I think that there's a big part of that and a big part of like, also, it's revealed that like his fixer nature to him, like was critical for moments. That's what allowed her to get to this place now where she's finally becoming like present in her life and able to process everything and kind of move on and forgive certain things and, and rekindle her relationship with her father. And, and, you know, again, like you said, move forward and, um, uh, you know, he needed that. He needed acknowledgement that like, I'm not 
because the whole time like he even has it tattooed across his chest that's like the only really ham-fisted thing of like where it says like please kill me because he doesn't value his life and seemingly that's what kind of launched him into that cycle of addiction was just that like he didn't care he'd do anything just because he he doesn't matter he's irrelevant he'll you know fade away someday young um but yeah like for him to realize it's like no no there are all these moments where she desperately needed him to pick her up through long it just wasn't sustainable and it can't be sustainable and for the if he truly loves her he cannot be around her because it's just going to create the same cycle over again and it's a way way better like when i say that out loud it sounds like the shitty plot to hancock but it's Uh, yeah, but I can yeah, assure you totally. it, it comes across much, much better than that. Like it really is like this poignant moment of realizing that it's like life goes on and, you know, you, they will always mean e- the world to each other, but they just cannot be together. Yeah. Again, that's one of uh, perhaps our, our generation and a half's greatest struggles is uh, what was lost is truly lost um, because of the internet and such history exists simultaneously and it's very tempting and you know everybody has photos of people and and totems that they can hold on to of previous states of being that nostalgia goggles be damned will never be again um and it's 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 definitely difficult and it's expressed incredibly viscerally and incredibly well by both of these actors in this sequence in particular um from a visual standpoint i thought it was really neat that uh, her look, her aesthetic is totally different. Probably, you know, partially for her musical career. She's now a solo artist. Um, but even, he even notes when they're in bed together, oh, you don't have any cuts on your arms because she hasn't been doing it anymore. Um, and I really liked that there's, it's not drawn attention to in any verbal exchange, but there's a, there's a, a body language cue uh, at the, highest tension point in their conversation where it's they're they never actually like say like they never do the soap opera thing it's like oh i love you but i can't be with you like they never do that because that's not how people fucking talk um they just emote like because you know exchanges like these tend to be very visceral there's not a whole lot of words that can articulate the feelings that are being passed back and forth but the the physical cue is that things are getting very very tense and she's like pinching the inside of her forearm. And he, as soon as he notes that, he's like, oh, yep, that's all I needed. It was, was just a, a signal that me, you, you and me doing this is not good for you. Like regardless of what good feelings it gives me, nope, you're, you're clearly better now than you were with me. And that's a signal that that's not going to continue if we're still together. Like, like you said, it's fucking Hancock. <laughs> I thought we were going to be making comparisons to the wrestler during this episode, not fucking Hancock. <laughs> There's a lot of similarities to it. I mean, ultimately, like, it, it's a story that, like, it's real life. You know, yeah. any time you're dealing with a movie that deals with real life, I think that's what, why that kind of duality you referred to earlier is so important to this because. It is like typically in a movie that centers around something like losing your hearing, it's going to be some big focal point. Like I said, the way even they marketed this movie 
very much comes across like it's one of those things where he's going to lose his hearing, but then learn the soul of music is in the performance and that he'll manage to do it without hearing. And like, it very much comes across like that front and center is that he's a drummer, drummer, musician. And it's like, no, no, that's, that's just a snippet of life. Like that's, that's just one moment. People are more complex than that. You don't just lose your hearing and your whole world centers around the fact that you no longer hear now. Like, and they do a great job with that where it's like, as opposed to something like, say, Mr. Holland's Opus, which is, you know, deals a bit with the deaf community, but like conveys it. It's like, oh, look, we can use traffic lights so he can kind of get an impression of music. It's like, instead, no, this is the full experience. This is like a person living, you're catching a window of their life and they're going to go off and do many, many other things and experience different highs and lows. And you completely center on that. It's like, okay, this is, this is awesome. This is the way you're supposed to kind of internalize what you're taking in and not just assume that it's going to have a beautiful start and a, a epic finish. Like so many features we're used to. God, I can hear the fucking Imagine Dragons song that would play over the trailer for this movie. Oh, I give my love, I give my love for you. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking song. They used it for every goddamn youth oriented <laughs> indie feature from the, like the mid 2000s. It's always like little kids running through the woods. It's like, oh, I know the dog's going to fucking die. <laughs> I don't even know what this movie is, but I know that dog's going to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh close your eyes have no fear i i really love uh mr holland's opus i'm gonna rewatch that i'm gonna make kyle watch that someday um it's a good one it's a good one but yeah like i said this this one i i like the deep dive it gives you with the deaf community yeah no it was it was really refreshing for me like uh illuminating i guess is actually the right word because obviously i'm aware of the deaf community but i didn't have the benefit of having interaction with it the way you did um, and I feel like this is a good baby's first, you know, deaf movie in a lot of ways. Like for, you know, for people who maybe aren't as aware, it's like, yeah, yeah th- there are communities of people who don't hear and they, they're fine. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it, it's, it's very good in that way. Cause it, it's an extraordinary film like that, that conveys its messages really well. But I like that, uh, like you said about uh, him drumming. Like the marketing really put an emphasis on him doing metal music. I, I wasn't aware of the marketing for the movie, but um, coming back to that theme of transitions, Lou adopted a different form of music. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to him, you know, hey, you know, you can still play the drums. In fact, we get a really, really charming scene of him teaching kids at the deaf school how to play a, a what, a, a five gallon drum? When he has his freak out too, when he first goes back to the camper, because yeah. the whole time he's supposed to have given his keys over to Joe, so he's not supposed to have access to his stuff. But um, after he sees online that she's performing solo, he uh, races back there and gets on his kit. And yeah, he bangs out something that's awesome. Like, and you just hear the sound of it. You know, like you don't actually see him going through it. It's like you just hear the sound, and it's like he can still do it. He can do it easily, actually. Yeah, he can still do it. It's just he, he he's failing to recognize that you know life the next the page is turned that you're on you're on to the next chapter try stop trying to turn it back but um transitions are always a really fascinating uh theme like it's one of my favorites um mostly because like i 
it, it's called liminal spaces the the spaces in between like like you and i can relate to this because um if you're not aware folks at home my brother and i are both mixed um, we're both japanese and uh some kind of white <laughs> so, there's some jewish in there too if you want to get technical but it's on the dad's side so it doesn't really matter point is uh we're in betweeners like from our blood um and liminal spaces transitional spaces are often thought of as i I use boxing for a lot of analogies it's when you're moving from one state to another that things are most heightened and most dangerous um and by that extension most dramatic uh, which makes for really really good storytelling which makes for very rich theming but the boxing analogy is when you have your guard up when you have both your hands covering your chin you're safe. You're, you're in a static position. You're mostly safe. <laughs> it depends on who you're tussling with, but <laughs> you're mostly safe. It's when you take action, when you advance, when you retreat. If you extend a punch, hey, guess what? Half your face is open. But if you keep both your hands tight, if you remain still, that's when you're most safe. Um, and this movie has a lot of transition points such that I feel like it's one of the core themes of the story. And it's really fascinating just to, to see how all of these characters handle that. It's like we get to see him actually thrive for a good chunk of this, like this middle chapter of the film, and it's it's really great. Um, but then we get to see the the grim reality of transitions. How sometimes it, it's it's a two steps forward, one step back process. I was just gonna say, like that's the beauty of it is it, it actually, especially again going back to the day and age we occupy, where we spend so much time taking in like. TikToks and YouTube videos where it's it's a consolidated reality and it's only going to get shorter and shorter and quicker and quicker and and it causes anxiety like you know you the only way you make progress in anything is you do have to approach it day by day which guess what how do you battle a lifelong addiction each day you gotta get up and each day you gotta face it and each day you gotta go through the motions and sometimes make only a little bit of progress it's not going to be like the, per- the celebrity that you see their Instagram and seemingly overnight they turned everything around and everything's wonderful again. Like that's not reality. Like reality can be very tedious, very boring, very difficult. And it's always fascinating when a movie decides to focus on that element of it rather than for so many years what we were accustomed to, which is that everything is the peaks and valleys and um, nothing in between. And so when you get a movie such as this, or to a lesser degree, like you had said, The Wrestler, where actually, no, like most of what you're seeing are, are the boring stuff, you know, it, it's fascinating, you know? Well, I'm glad you brought up The Wrestler. We're not going to dissect The Wrestler. That's an episode for a different day because that's a fantastic film. Um, but this one, this one is as well, but they're two very different products, although they do have a lot of similarities. From a cinematography standpoint, they both kind of have that very intimate, kind of voyeuristic quality to them at times this one has more traditional cinematography for large chunks of it but a lot of the wrestler is just like you're with mickey rourke taking a shit you're with mickey rourke fucking a lady with a whole bunch of fireman stuff in her bedroom (laughs) you're just with mickey basically for that whole movie but but again transitions that whole movie like substitute hearing loss for heart problems and it's a, it's a guy who is latched onto a thing that is, should exist in his past, and he just will not let it go. Only difference is um, one of these characters learned a lesson. The other one said, fuck it. 
<laughs> like I am the Ram. I will continue to be the Ram. And as I texted you earlier today, <laughs> Sound of Metal featured no Ram Jam in its final scene. Zero stars. <laughs> will not ever watch again. <laughs> it doesn't matter because once the whale comes out, it's going to shit on all movies. So, oh, <laughs> I feel really bad. I I, uh, I misquoted the director for the whale on on uh, the Cinema Speak podcast with Brad. Um, I said PTA Paul Thomas Anderson instead of Darren Aronofsky. So I'm I'm massively apologetic apologetic for that if anybody gives a shit it is in fact darren aronofsky and brendan fraser doing a film by the name of the whale um that is most certainly one of the most anticipated films of everyone's calendar hopefully or at the very least your idiot brother who does wrestling and video game podcasts at nearly 40 so (laughs) take (laughs) that with a grain of salt hey man like there have been like at least a decade of internet rumors circulating about what happened to Brendan Fraser. Did you ever see that tweet he made about the mummy 2017? That's phenomenal. Oh. <laughs> like he just, he, he emerged after like a decade <laughs> of silence just to shit on Tom Cruise's mummy. Like all he did was like post a picture of the box office take and he was like, ha ha. <laughs> and that was it. He was like, I'm out. <laughs> My mummy is the superior mummy. It is, Brendan Fraser. You and Steven Summers done good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you can cripple an entire, uh, you know, franchise with one movie, that's saying something about how shitty the new one was. Oh, no, that movie was god-awful. But sounds like we're about out of steam here for Sound of Metal. So we'll, we'll wrap things up. Uh, Matt, did you have any closing thoughts or are you about out of gas? The only other thing I would acknowledge is like, I thought that there were some wonderful sequences where it just kind of shows nature or just moments of peace. And what's beautiful about them is again, um, I discussed this earlier, but there are moments that you can take in if you have the sound on or not, you know, it's, you're not gaining or losing anything. You can just experience life. And I think they do a great job of having some, just they're sprinkled throughout the whole thing. Just these little long cuts that make you just kind of take it all in and just be like, we don't have enough of that in our day to day life. And I, I think this movie does a good job of reminding you of that. Yeah, actually, now you mention it. Uh, cinematography does have a lot of wonderful nature sequences on the farmhouse in particular. Um, I like that it's, it's used first in an antagonistic fashion where when he's stuck alone trying to do some writing, he, he's actually like, frantically looking around i mean he's throwing a temper tantrum but when he kind of gets his wits about him he actually like looks out the window and we hear it outside of his perspective so we do hear like the room and you can hear like birds chirping and stuff and what i gleaned from that is that it's a it's a longing for memories of looking out a window that are that that's no longer his reality and and also it speaks to him being uncomfortable with stillness which is the thing that that's the key lesson that joe was trying to impart to him yeah i I mean not to get too much further into it because i think we've said just about everything but yeah just the sequence too when they're driving to the community the first time um it's jarring a because it's shortly thereafter the the scene where he's hearing and and he's talking to Lou the whole time and they're having this grand old time just navigating through a city and like he's driving's just a joy to him. But now as he's driving, they can't do that. And he's just tense the whole time. 
and her the look on her face again like i said on the second viewing like you can just tell like she's just processing it all through her head it's like up oh, here we go again it's all gonna follow the same pattern that we've always been through and you know my life's gonna be a nightmare and um but then they come across that sign that says like uh, deaf children playing at play or something like that and it's almost like a startling like realization because for them like you know neither of them know anything about deaf community so it's like this you know it's it's a sign you don't see in your day-to-day life for the most part and so it jars them kind of like well, what do we do what does this mean and it's like well you know now you you kind of take a step back and you realize all it just means is like be hyper vigilant there's kids around oh yeah by the way they're not going to hear you if you like honk or anything so drive slow you know but just that unfamiliar thing just like it's a really tense little sequence that <laughs> for something it's such a just like random nothing you know oh yeah and and even from a visual standpoint like the lighting's very grim and dark as they're heading towards the farmhouse and i think it's even like a rainstorm and yeah she's she's thoroughly disengaged with him and you can tell from her body language and her face that she's just all up in her head worrying um but yeah as soon as we get there like the sun's come out to play and it's fucking beautiful it it's it's like the it's like they had to drive through the storm and, and as soon as they get there, it's like, oh, it's this, it's a strange transition, but you know, once you're in it, you're in it. And I did think that was really fascinating that like he, like you said about his addictions, it's like this idea of jumping into a brand new world. Like he's a lot stronger than most people I know, but it's because he's been fighting a, a bigger fight <laughs> a lot longer than anyone I know. <laughs> um but yeah, uh, this was a really fantastic movie. I'm really glad that you you picked it because I've, I've, of course, been aware of it. It's, of course, been on my watch list. Uh, however, I've, I've been watching action movies and giant monster movies for two months now, and I really haven't had time for it. So it's really great to actually get some culture, actually watch something good for a change. Oh, you <laughs> Objectively can be good. You can be certain anytime there's fucked up people and drums involved, I'm going to recommend it to you. Yeah, folks at home, if you're not aware, not too long ago, one of my brother's picks, because uh, I make the mistake of letting him pick the movie usually when he's on, was uh, Whiplash, which is also about drumming, um, but about a different kind of fucked up person. <laughs> but the similarities between the two movies end there. However, I do, I do think it's really funny that somehow my brother, who I don't really think of as being into drumming, picked two movies of that of that category fascinating um but anyway that's about it here so uh matt before we go do you want to let the folks at home where they can uh know where they can find both of your podcasts because you have two of them now jesus (laughs) anywhere podcasts are available it's either couch co-op if you're into video games or the hollywood brunettes if you're into wrestling you know, I think that's a good choice for both shows because I have noticed there's quite a lot of crossover between those two things. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, folks at home, if you'd like to catch up on any of our Catching Up on Cinema content, uh, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, we also have a couple of social media accounts in the form of an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema as well as a Twitter, at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those, and I'll get back to you in a jiffy. Uh, And the podcast is available on pretty much any platform you can imagine, including Cephalopod. Uh, So fucking Google it. Uh, But that being said, uh, this has been Matt, my brother, uh, me, Trevor, reviewing Sound of Metal, directed by Darius Martyr from 2020. And uh, we will catch you next time. Bye.